to Master Series 60 Minutes, and we're joined by two absolutely phenomenal global experts uh, for the next 60 minutes to discuss all roads lead to healing, how to get the best out of wound bed preparation. And joining us, we've got Miss Terry Swanson. Welcome, Terry. Thank you. Hello. I'm very excited to be talking about one of my favorite topics. Oh, we're excited to hear as well. And we've also got Professor Georgina Gethin joining us from Ireland. Hi, everybody, and delighted to be here. And like Terry, excited to be talking about all of this. Thank you very much, ladies. And for our global audience, I know so many of you are joining us from different countries over the next 60 minutes. If you have any queries for any of our speakers or any discussion points on any of the topics today, um, please feel free to drop the question in the chat and we'll come to your questions as we go along. It's going to be a very interactive experience. We've got some poll questions coming up. Uh, so please uh, interact with us. Let us know what your clinical practice is. Let us know the challenges you face with wound bed preparation. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Uh, not sure where you are in the world listening to this webinar. And I really want to thank Wound Masterclass for putting this on and for the honour of being invited to present to all of you. And it's a great pleasure, I suppose, and privilege to be looking at the area of wound assessment. But I was also charged with looking also at the issue of person-centred care and then linking this to wound assessment. So it's quite a, a difficult challenge. But I hope that through the next 30 minutes or so, you'll be able to follow along with me and uh, we will be able to explore this issue in great detail. My name is Georgina Gethin. I'm Professor in Nursing and Midwifery in School of Nursing and Midwifery in University of Galway in Ireland. And I will be doing the first part of the session and follow that afterwards by my uh, colleague, uh, Terry Swanson. So I suppose, what are we trying to look at here? What is it that we are interested in? And I would argue that if we look at the issue of quality in healthcare, within that there is person-centered care, within that in relation to wounds, we have patient assessment followed by wound assessment. And I hope I'll be able to show you how wound assessment reflects overall quality in healthcare. So what is quality in healthcare? In the US, the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality have identified six domains that they consider are indicators of healthcare quality. Many of these you will know, but imagine if you change your viewpoint to look at them from the lens of wound care. We should be providing care that is safe and avoiding harm to, pay, to patients from care that is intended to help them. We should really importantly be providing care that is effective. And we have to question how effective are many of our interventions and the practices we have. But also this should be effective in terms of also avoiding underuse or misuse of such interventions. And the third on their list, and these are not in a priority order, is that healthcare quality should be patient-centered. That is care that is respectful of and responsive to individual patient preferences, needs and values and ensuring therefore that patient values guide all clinical decisions. This care should be timely, it should be efficient and it should be equitable. So in terms of wound care, and I say we keep this lens in our mind when we talk about it, some of the symptoms and experiences that are associated with a chronic wound include the physical impact to the patient, the social impact, and the psychological impact. But person-centered care argues that they should be in the center of our decisions. They should not be on the periphery. And as clinicians, primarily, we consider that we do deliver person-centered care, and I have no doubt that many of us do. But it's not just merely that, and not even merely, but it's not just that issue of keeping the patient to the centre. It is wider than that. Well, compliance is the willingness to follow or consent to the wishes of another. Adherence is the decision to accept, to reject or to modify one's treatment. And concordance, which is the lovely, you know, nice term that is often put out, it is an agreement between the clinician and patient on the treatment plan. And it's something that we aspire to, but it's not a term that we actually use that often as such. But in relation to person-centered care, the Picker Institute at Harvard Medical School 
have identified eight principles of person-centered care. And I often think of a wound like an island. Now, I don't want to sort of slog a metaphor to death here, but if you think about an island, it's affected by what's around it and it's affected also by what's under it. If you really want to go, you can, it can be affected by weather, wind, water, so on. So when we look on the left, when we talk about wound assessment, the wound is assessed as part of assessing the surrounding area. We'll look at that very soon, which is in part uh, assessed, including patient intrinsic factors. Then we look at patient assessment, and then we look at the environment of which the patient has been managed. And this could include their social environment, but it can also include their healthcare system. So the wound assessment may be the center of the bullseye that we talk about. And oftentimes I focus on the wound, but all of these other factors are going to influence what the wound itself looks like. And it will influence healing and the risk of healing and the risk of further deterioration. So moving into that area of assessment, how do we prepare the wound to heal? And there's much written around the concept of wound bed preparation, but I just saw a very recent article from Gary Sibold and colleagues in 2021, and they looked at this again in terms of updated recommendations. And what's lovely with the approach that they take is that they start about a person with a chronic wound. So if you're talking about your person-centered care, this is a person with a chronic wound. Identify and treat the cause of wound. Identify the patient of family-centered concerns. Determine the ability to heal. Then you move on to local wound care, which includes debridement, inflammation, infection, moisture balance, and then the edge effect. And they have a list of 10 recommendations, two of which I'll just try and focus on more so in this uh, time remaining in this presentation. To treat the cause. We need to identify the cause and treat the cause, whether that is pressure, moisture-associated skin damage, uh, medical device-related injury, venous hypertension, and so on. Many clinicians now, in terms of continuing to see patients, start the consultations in a different way. And it's a very lovely way of really emphasizing patient-centered concerns. And the question is, what are your concerns today? What do you need help with? And it completely flips our focus from what we want to assess to what the patients want us to do. Determine the ability to heal. Is it possible or not? Then looking at local wound care management, debridement when indicated, assessing for the treatment of infection, which uh, Terry will look at, moisture management, evaluating the rate of healing, so ongoing wound measurement, and looking at the edge of the wound as an indicator of wound status, and followed by organizational support. So wound assessment helps us in terms of planning, monitoring, justification for interventions, and also in terms of enhanced communication. Caroline Dowsett and colleagues looked at the triangle of wound assessment. They say you need to assess the wound bed, the wound edge, and the surrounding skin. And I'll give you some examples of how we might address that. So in looking at this particular patient, and just to emphasize the photos are for education purposes and provide it with permission. If I block out the center of the wound, it forces us straight away to look around the wound. What can we see? What can we tell about how this wound is likely to be? And if we look at this, you can see these satellite images that are breaking out on the right hand side. You see this very dry, flaky skin build up of, uh, between varicose eczema uh, and the dryness from, from prolonged bandaging as well. And then you see this fragile periwound area. Also along the top, you can see varicosities. And again, you see more of these satellite lesions. This, by the way, is a patient who has venous hypertension, long-standing chronic venous leg ulceration. So if we look then to the wound itself, one of the questions it brings us to is where is the edge of the wound? So in looking at this, in some parts, we can see where an edge is. We can see along the top, there is an edge, but it starts to blend into the wound itself. 
Look here around the bottom. It's blending into the wound. So the edge of this wound is not well defined. Within the wound bed itself, you can see fibrinous tissue that is laid down. You do see this shiny reflection, but that, that is more reflection of the camera than uh, what is on the wound. And then you see this bright red, very, very friable tissue. So does this wound has the, have the potential to heal? It does, but it requires a renewed approach to the healing of this wound. When we, as I say, when we look at it here, the edge is not well defined. In a healing wound, this edge should be much more well-defined and you will see areas of epithelial edge advancement. This is not evident in this particular wound. If we look by contrast to this uh, wound, and this is a patient who has, this is a person with diabetes, he also had a stroke, and this is a heal ulcer. So what we can see with this, there is no area of surrounding erythema. There is no signs of infection in this wound, yet you have this buildup of this thick, tenacious slough that's here. But if we look at the edge of this wound, you can see how well defined it is. And if you look down along the left hand side here, you can see this healthy tissue that is, even though there is all the slough, it is actually merging into the wound itself here. In the case like this, the treatment should be actually uh, to protect the good uh, skin that is there, the good tissue that is there in the form of granulation tissue around the top. And then to, the removal of this slough is not warranted at this point because unless, sorry, it is not warranted at this point. This per person has severe peripheral arterial disease. To remove this slough, particularly by a scalpel, would open up a wound that this site is not able to cope with, and you would get a rebound necrosis. In this case, the main priority is to manage the exudate, which seems to be well managed. There is no indication of um, maceration or anything around the skin. Protect the underlying tissue here and monitor for any signs of infection. In this case, you can see again, a very, very different wound edge. And without being any form of an expert, one would know that this wound is not in a good state. The edge here on the right-hand side, you can see there's this purplish hue to the edge. You can also see that the, the tissue here is quite, it's this dark, dull red. This is one of the difficulties with color. I've said earlier, a bright red, then you have a good red granulation tissue. This is not a good way to be describing something, but this is what we have. You see this dull red tissue. The entire wound bed is covered in this fibrinous tissue, but it is not slough. Up at the top on the, your left-hand side, you can see the edge again. You can see it's quite ragged. And then down at the bottom here again, you can while well, you can define the edge of the wound, but you can see that it's very, very thin. What I can tell you is that this patient had rheumatoid arthritis and her wound would get very, very large very quickly when she would have a flare up of rheumatoid arthritis. So much of this deterioration is due to the rheumatoid arthritis and the drug therapy that she is on. Is it healable? Yes. How would you manage this? Managing exudate from the wound, which is quite uh, large and then management of the inflammation around the, the wound and management of local wound infection. This is a patient with, I suppose, a more, if you like, regular uh, venous leg ulcer, if there is such a thing. So in this, you can see there is no sign of infection, no sign of inflammation around the wound. The wound bed itself, you see this almost like a bubbly granulation tissue. This is good granulation tissue. And you can see this lovely well-defined wound edge, but it is not inflamed. It's not sloping right into the wound itself. There is some fibrous tissue here, but there is no buildup of slough. Man is simple dressing to protect this um, tissue and management of wound exudate. In all of these cases, I would say that adequate wound cleansing is so important, using a good irrigation fluid to cleanse the wound. In some cases, regular tap water that is drinkable is also acceptable. And finally, just to look at perhaps a, another example of wound assessment and uh, how we might uh, manage it. 
This uh, unfortunate lady had this very extensive venous leg ulceration. We talk about social circumstances, the environment that people live in. Is this healable? Yes. Will it take a long time? Yes. But in this particular patient, the likelihood of healing is very, very small. And that is primarily due to many social circumstances, but also due to multiple underlying comorbidities. But what you can see in this, if you look at the wound edge and the arrow on the left, you see this very, very fragile, friable wound edge. You can see how it's starting to extend up here. Underneath this, you've got this very, very delicate inflamed uh, tissue. You come down to the right hand side here to the second arrow and you can see these areas of new islands of epithelial that have uh, epithelial tissue that are popping up, indicating the wound healing is actually occurring. But if we move down around here to the ankle, you see this huge buildup of pseudomonas. You see maceration, inflammation. And what's happening here really is that there's copious exudate from the, from the wound, but it is pouring down and gathering here around the ankle. So the treatment here is to treat any underlying infection, irrigation to reduce the bacterial burden, and then extra, extra, um, uh, moisture absorbing dressings down here around the ankle with protection of the peri-wound area from this maceration and fairly regular uh, wound dressings as regular as is possible. Simple, you know, just changing these absorbent pads to actually soak up all of this exudate. The patient is suitable for compression but refuses compression therapy. Um, but you can see in terms of assessment the edge is varies throughout the wound. And this is one of the challenges with wound care is that the wound is not a uniform island. It is different depending on where in the wound we actually focus. And this other uh, patient, this is a much more obvious uh, in terms of there is an infection, but there is also this huge uh, maceration of the peri-wound skin due to excessive moisture from the wound. There is a buildup of slough and fibrin. Again, we can see the edge, very, very friable, not well-defined, defined in places, but inflamed. And in this case, again, gentle irrigation to clean the, the wound bed, to reduce the bacterial burden, really good protection of the peri-wound skin, and then very adequate moisture control. In the case of uh, compression therapy, this should be held off until the infection has resolved. In terms of protecting the peri-wound area, protect it from moisture-associated skin damage, try to clean with hypoallergenic, not non-irritating products, avoid products containing preservatives, tepid water only if it's used, no-rinse products are often the best, and then gentle drying of the skin. Consider dressings that protect the peri-wound area and then skin protecting products as well. Uh, Terry, we're delighted to have you joining us for this section on wound bed preparation. We're going to kind of hone in on your clinical experience over these, these many years that you've been involved with evidence-based practice. And so we'd love to hear a bit more about your practice um, currently. Thank you. Uh, I work in an outpatient clinic. So today I'm going to talk to you about wound bed preparation. I've, I've provided you with my disclosure. So the learning objectives today are basically the principles of biofilm management, understanding the, the characteristics or the phenotype and how that may impact on wound healing. Then I'll go into some of the evidence and recommendations for treatment. Uh, and I'll be focusing on two main documents, the International Wound Infection Institute consensus documents and wound hygiene. And then I'll conclude with value-based healthcare, understanding that it's more than the unit cost. So the principles of biofilm management. So the, the characteristics or the phenotype. So the planktonic is not the normal state um, for bacteria. And it's planktonic when it's considered non-attached or free-floating, and it's replicating. Therefore, if it goes into uh, great density or virulence, then it becomes what they call an acute infection. And antibiotics are effective for planktonic because they are replicating. Biofilm, however, are when they attach, and they can attach either to themselves, 
to the dressing, go uh, below the wound surface. Once they become attached, they can group and that's called aggregation. When they aggregate, um, they can then develop communication, which they call quorum sensing. When they start to mature, they become more tolerant to most antimicrobial agents. And the host defenses they are reduced, they have reduced efficacy because of the protection of the extracellular matrix, because the center of a mature biofilm may be slightly hypoxic, and certainly the meiotic activity, the replicating has decreased. Therefore, antibiotics are not as effective. Because the body recognizes that the biofilm is there, it promotes a chronic inflammation. And studies have shown that it can be over a thousand times more tolerant to antibiotics. Biofilms do have primitive circulatory systems that facilitate the uptake of nutrients. And these nutrients can be from the wound fluid. It can be from edema. And that's why moisture management is so important. And then you have the removal of those metabolic products. And so you see an increase of exudate with, uh, when you have biofilm. And then we also know that it can be gene transfer of the microbes within that, and it can be polymicrobial. The human microbiome is a, a complex system. And we know that sometimes the, the bacteria and that microbiome work together to reduce uh, pathogenic bacteria. So not all bacteria, not all biofilm are necessarily bad. It's when it becomes pathogenic. And so it's that hyperinflammation caused by the pathogenic uh, biofilm in a wound that establishes a chronic and recalcitrant wound healing process. So there is an imbalance where now you have too many of um, the, the negative components of wound healing in levels that are not conducive to wound healing. And those destructive enzymes and toxics can actually decrease the, the wound uh, condition. It takes the wound from being a host-centric, so controlled by the body's physiological processes, to now controlled more by the bacteria or bacteria-centric. This imbalance decreases the um, receptors for the growth factors, or in fact, decreases the amount of growth factors. As I said, those destructive lytic enzymes and free radicals affect the cell proliferation as well as the wound healing capabilities. This uh, nutrient-rich exudate uh, from persistent inflammation assists in the bacterial cause. It makes that environment more hostile um, and it affects immune recognition and the healing process. So it's a cascade in the wrong direction. So I was fortunate to be part of this biofilm consensus group. So it's a global panel and we first met in 2015. I've listed my esteemed colleagues here. But what we did through a Delphi process was come up with a consensus, one on a definition, but you know, this is 217 times of advance from there. But what we came up with was these signs and symptoms, and there was some level of agreement on there. These are currently being debated um, uh, by the same uh, scientists, but this is what we have so far, and this is what we tend to work from is the failure of appropriate antibiotic treatment um, so that you antibiotics don't work on replicating uh, uh, non-replicating bacteria. Biofilm decreases that meiotic activity that recalcitrates into appropriate antimicrobial treatment for the reasons that I've just talked about. These patients uh, with uh, local infection or biofilm infection that um, they tend to be on this sort of 10-week cycle that once you stop the antibiotic treatment, those symptoms uh, quickly come back. When you have a healable wound and you have delayed healing despite optimal treatment, so you've got the diagnosis, you're targeting therapy, and they still don't continue to heal. Um, you have this increased exudate and, and moisture. And so when you're doing your weekly assessments, when you start to see that increasing exudate, that may be a red flag. We know uh, that there's this low level chronic inflammation, this low level redness and erythema. Um, and sometimes patients are unfortunately prescribed antibiotics for this when it's inflammation, not infection. What we do have consistency is that with granulation tissue, it's not necessarily healthy. So you can, it may be frile 
friable, so it bleeds easily, or you have your hypergranulation where it's raised. Either that poor granulation is significant or a sign of um, a high density of bacteria in that wound, a heavy bile burden. And then the secondary signs of infection are fairly aligned with what I'm talking about now. Um, and those secondary signs were first published in 1994 by Keith Cutting and Keith Harding. So this is a, um, an updated version of the biofilm-based wound care. And it, again, it continues to have those consistent uh, um, instructions for the disruption of the biofilm, the prevention of recolonization and monitoring. What, um, what I might say with, with this schemata is that, yes, I agree with failing to heal uh, as expected, uh, the signs of persistent inflammation. The presence or slough or necrosis may not be relevant to biofilm in itself. It may be to, um, especially necrosis, level of uh, circulation and slough may be also moisture balance. Ineffective topical, topical treatments that I just talked about and the slime on the wound bed I don't necessarily subscribe to because as I said with Matt Malone, the pristine wound. Uh, but I thought it was nice to see that it updated in 2023. But I go on now to talking about evidence-based practice and treatment recommendations. So there is some consistency uh, amongst uh, the management of biofilm. And you know we've had wound bed preparation uh, since the 1990s. Uh, we had time that was first published in the early 2000. Um, and there's been many iterations of time since then. Uh, the most popular being timers talking about uh, regenerative medicine, uh, that was Adkins, biofilm-based wound care with Randy Walcott in 2010, the step-down, step-up paradigm that we published with the biofilm expert panel in 2017, the wound hygiene that was published with the four-step program um, was published in 2019 and 2020. Georgina did a brilliant job in providing that foundation importance of that we need to provide, once we know that etiology, the standard of care for that etiology. Then we need to do the wound and the peri-wound cleansing. The debridement not only of the wound, but the edges and the peri-wound is required. And once the wound is pre prepared, then we provide proactive management to prevent that microbial attachment. So I've just picked a few guides for you. There's pathways, guides, guidelines, and best practice. And we actually, yes, Terry, we've actually included these in the handouts in the virtual booth. So for oh. all our global viewers, you can actually download sort of best practice and the guidelines. So if you just go to handouts and we'll share that in the chat right now. Fantastic. That's awesome. Yeah, thanks a lot for that. It's really helpful to kind of um, start with an evidence-based practice because sometimes there's such disparity globally in how people are actually managing wound bed cleansing, wound bed debridement, and there's just such a kind of varied practice throughout the world. So I feel like these documents uh, in terms of best practice and guidelines actually give the framework for people to be able to apply um, to their own clinical practices as well. And also to teach from, also we use these documents for updating our policies and procedures. Um, and when you have the latest evidence, you know, the accreditors, when they come through, they're very pleased to see that you have updated references. And this group, not only uh, they came to a consensus about what that entailed. And so I commend this document to you, but it's about um, an anti-biofilm strategy and it provides you guidance um, about what to look for, how to do it. And as the wound continues to heal, the intensity of those interventions. And I go through that a little bit more through the, the presentation. So the International Wound Infection Institute, so this was our first publication in 2008. And Biofilm only had, um, I think, two, two sentences in regards to, uh, so this is our wound infection continuum. We see that um, we have contamination colonized, local, spreading, and systemic. We have an asterisk that localized because at that time in 2008, a lot of people were still using the words critical colonization. What we know is that at this point, um, something changed that tipped over into um, where they were symptomatic. And this is where our intervention is required. We had the arrow showing that increasing clinical problems uh, aligned with increasing microbial density. This was only 19 pages um, and we, uh, 
translated into multiple languages. In 2016, we uh, updated this um, wound infection continuum. We did this uh, through rigorous methodology of a Delphi process. Again, green, agreeing on the terminology about increasing microbial virulence, uh, and we added biofilm. Now you would think this little arrow wouldn't take much to put in there, but it really took, uh, I think, almost four rounds to find some consistency where we were gonna put the biofilm. We continued with our intervention strategy starting at local and reserving topical antimicrobials for when there is a local infection. We completely uh, removed the term critical colonization and we provided the rationale in, in that document and then saving systemic antibiotics uh, for the spreading infection so that we have good uh, stewardship of, of our antiseptics as well as our antimicrobials. And then we were fortunate for our document in 2022, again, through rigorous methodology, we updated our uh, wound infection continuum. The clinicians wanted the signs and symptoms below our terminology, so we've added that in the whole um, A1, uh, a, a document about not only the in continuum, but the management plan can be found in the document. Again, we have local and overt, again, um, providing um, when intervention is required. And this is based on our current understanding of biofilm and wound infection in itself. And the next slides, I go through them individually uh, with local and spreading. So with local, Again, we have in 2016, we divided them from covert and overt. Covert is more aligned with the um, biofilm and the secondary signs of infection. So that delayed healing, increased wound size, that unhealthy granulation tissue I talked about, and increased exudate. The overt are your classic signs um, of uh, increased pain, edema, and you may have some purulent exudate. What's also important is it's still contained within the wound bed, so that two centimeters is important that it's contained within that. Uh, and the treatment is proactive, so it's therapeutic cleansing and consideration of topical antimicrobials. Then we go on to spreading infection. So this is where the, there's invasion of the surrounding and deeper tissue by the infective organisms. And so the erythema is now greater than two centimeters. You can see in the pictorials that I've provided that it's certainly going beyond two centimeters and you have cellulitis. You have a toe that is cyanotic due to the uh, decreased perfusion from the edema and from the microbes being in there. Um, so treatment here is not only the therapeutic cleansing and topical antimicrobials, but now is the time that you need systemic antibiotics. So um, many times, people will put up close-ups of uh, photos and say, is this wound infected? But you actually need to step back and look at this. And so this is actually inflammation. So you can see it's in a square and infection doesn't do a square. So this is either contact from the dressing and a reaction, or it's the wound fluid that is now interacting with the skin in a negative way. So you have that contact dermatitis. So when you're looking at infection versus inflammation, Think about what are the causative agents of that as well. So I have been lecturing and campaigning about wound cleansing for decades. And my mantra has always been stop anointing wounds. You know, people just kind of, um, they teach still in the, in the grad, you know, about this sort of um, in one hand and doing this. And, and that really doesn't do anything. And Dot Weir and I have bonded over this concept. And so she always says, clean it like you mean it. And this pictorial is just showing you that in one clinical setting that you can remove that non-viable tissue and clean this up so that your dressings are actually going to contact the wound surface. So the reason that we take the time to do wound cleansing are, are these items here is that we know through evidence that with appropriate therapeutic cleansing, that we can decrease our antibiotic prescribing, that we can alter that wound environment and we disrupt the biofilm. Therefore, it improves the efficacy of our topical treatments. And if we do this rigorously in the early phases of that wounding, that we could hopefully decrease the escalation from a local infection prevent it from going from a spreading infection. And if we can do that through our, our management strategies, doing a wound dressing procedure, then we have an opportunity to not only save a limb, but a life. 
So there's lots of options for cleaning the peri wound in the skin. So in my facility, we use a lot of um, potable water and, and washcloths for that, uh, for cleaning the peri wound. Um, you have um, the uh, commercial wipes um, and our podiatry uh, department uses them a lot because it's a smaller body surface area. You can have um, uh, glove fingers, you can have forceps for scraping off that hy hyperkeratotic tissue. In the UK, they use a lot of sponges. Um, and then the synergistic effect of using a cleaning agent uh, to, to use with these just makes the job easier. So the solutions um, for wound cleansing are, are many. So this is our table nine from the International Wound Infection Institute, where we give you the, the cleansing solution, the fluid type, the safety profile, and any comments regarding that. Let's have a look at how a surfactant works. A surfactant molecule basically consists of a hydrophilic, water-attracting head and a water-repelling, hydrophobic tail. Since the tail doesn't like water, it searches for another place to go, which here is our biofilm. The polar heads of the surfactant molecules have the same electric load, and therefore they repel each other. This is how the biofilm breaks up. Several of these surfactant molecules bind to the biofilm and build micelles, which can then be removed from the wound bed much more easily. In this way, betaine has in essence opened the door for the supportive effect of polyhexanide in Prontosan, which can now act against the bacteria. Polyhexanide, or PHMB, is used as a disinfectant, or antiseptic. It is able to attack and destroy various types of microorganisms. Gram-positive and gram-negative bacteria are protected by a cell wall, whereas human cells are surrounded by a cell membrane. These bacteria can cause serious diseases and are resistant to antibiotics and antiseptics. A bacterial cell wall has a negative charge, while the PHMB molecule has several positive charges, which makes PHMB act like a magnet, attaching itself to different areas of the cell, starting with the negatively charged outer cell wall. PHMB binds itself to the cell wall through electrostatic interaction. The cell wall breaks open and begins to leak, where the PHMB molecules attack. This results in the cytoplasm exiting the cell, which quickly causes the bacteria to die. PHMB attacks, breaks down, and destroys bacteria. Due to its positive charge, it also supports the barrier effect on the wound, as it helps prevent bacterial cells from adhering to the wound surface. No bacteria, no pathogenic biofilm. Uh, the wound hygiene document also provides you with those documents. So there are evidence to help guide you what um, you need for your facility. Now, this document is from 2015, but I really love this document because it talks about prevention. So preventing that, that dry leg happening um, and then the treatment for that and then maintenance of that. So not only do we have to provide that wound cleansing and, and improvement, but we also have to have that limb skin health as well. And so this document provides you with easy strategies for cleansing, emollients, uh, to provide that skin health, which is so imperative because that hyperkeratosis, um, it just is a great breeding ground for microbes. And we're trying to reduce that and prevent infection. So I'm going to ask you, um, are you rinsing, cleaning, or scrubbing your wounds? So rinsing, there's a reason that we just don't rinse our dishes and then eat off them. There's a reason that we just don't rinse our hair or rinse our mouth uh, for good oral hygiene. We actually need to clean uh, our dishes for good hygiene. We need to actually clean our hands for good hand hygiene. And we need to clean our wounds when we have a local infection. If they have um, an infection um, many times, we need to actually scrub the wounds. And in order to do that, we need the synergistic effect of an agent 
and a mechanical device. And I'll go through some what of those options are. So we know that sterile water and normal saline have limitability to manage those microbes. But if that's all you have, then make that up with the aggressive mechanical action that you're using. Antiseptic solutions assist in cleaning. Uh, more, it makes it more effective because they're designed to kill and disrupt the bacteria in the wound. Surfactants just make the job easier because it breaks that surface tension and it makes removing that debris more effective. The mechanical aids assist that. So we know that, that gauze is okay, but you have to keep using multiple gauze because of that cross-contamination. The mechanical aids, the debridement pads, retain those microbes. Um, and so it's just more efficient. Um, also, the evidence suggests it's less painful. Now, this, just, this document just came out over the weekend. Um, and it's on the use of antiseptics in practice. So anytime that we're talking about wound infection, we have to manage the moisture balance. And that wound exudate is so important. So this is a document um, uh, talking about wound exudate effective assessment and management. A wonderful document to choose. So this is just one table from the document, table seven, talking about the type of exudate, the color, the consistency or the viscosity of that, and then some comments about that. Understanding that viscosity can influence the effectiveness of your dressings, but we need to inspect the old dressing. So we need to, uh, when I'm looking at a saturated dressing, I'm going to ask the patient, when was this changed? So if it's totally saturated and it was changed this morning or yesterday, you know that's not going to last three days. So that's going to inform me about the frequency. So you have a choice when the skin is macerated or um, it's heavy exudate is you either increase the frequency of the dressing change or you increase the absorbency of the regime. So you have choices, but you have to understand that that moisture needs to be balanced. And that type of fluid is giving you a story that helps with your assessment. So why do we therapeutically uh, clean wounds? Again, just to reemphasize to you folks, we need to disrupt that biofilm, cleanse the excess exudate from the wound, prepare the wound bed for cultures and, and or the wound dressing, assist in that wound assessment by removing all that debris, um, and then decreasing that bile burden are essential criteria. So in the IWI, we have adopted the step-down, step-up biofilm-based wound care that was first published by Schultz et al. in 2017. The focus of this paradigm is that we need to be less tolerant of non-healing. And so we want you, when the patient comes into your service, to understand what the diagnosis is. And if you don't know the diagnosis, then you need to refer off or get somebody who can provide that diagnosis. We want aggressive debridement and empirical treatment um, and standard of care for that patient. So within that first week, you should see some change, whether it's improved the quality of living for the patient, such as decreased exudate, uh, decreased odor. Um, wound healing may, won't be occurring necessarily in that first week, but you should have a healing trajectory within that first month. And we now have uh, healing timelines or expected healing timelines. And then if you're not get that patient's not on a healing trajectory within four to six weeks, then that patient needs to be reassessed. But if they are now are on the healing trajectory, the decision to step them down to standard care or step them up uh, within that for once a wound is prepared for more advanced modalities, whether it's skin grafts or negative pressure, um, cellular-based uh, tissue products, um, oxygen-based um, products. Uh, to help facilitate that final healing or healing, in fact. <laughs> yeah. So this comes from the wound hygiene consensus document. So this is just to help um, some of the, the people watching the webinar to understand that um, you can help guide your patients if they're doing self-care or the carers themselves as to what they can do within their scope. And, and uh, or if I can't, I don't do all the dressing changes. So I have a catchment area of 250 kilometers, different services uh, implementing the regime that I've prescribed. And some of them may have training, some may not have training. So again, providing guidance on what they're quite capable to do within their realms. And then obviously the expert or certified clinicians where we're doing the diagnosis and prescribing the regime. 
The next slide talks about um, with the um, performing the wound hygiene tasks uh, based on the um, tissue uh, and the healing. So obviously with necrotic tissue, uh, we need vigorous and physical force for that. And with necrotic tissue, many times, um, if mechanical is all you can do, but the, the quickest way to do it is, is sharp, conservative sharp or sharp. Um, and uh, so it talks about that with the sloughy wounds where you have that surface substance. Again, it's still rigorous. Uh, the, uh, and then it gives you the uh, options for that. And then uh, unhealthy granulation is still intensive, but as you get more towards a healing trajectory, you can become more gentle and you, you don't have to use the sharp or it just becomes more mechanical. And then as it's epithelializing, just uh, gentle uh, cleansing. So we talked about the four steps about cleansing the wound and peri-wound, debridement, refashioning the wound edge, making sure that crust is removed from the wound edges or debriding the callus, the hyperkeratosis. And then the fourth step is the dressings. And so there are multiple types. We have medicated, whether it be honey, silver, antiseptic, or iodine. We have the non-medicated, and they work through action, and whether it be microbial binding, sequestering means that it goes into the dressing and is held, osmotic or hypertonic, which has the sort of rinsing activity. If it's a dry wound, you have moisture donating, or if it's wet, you have absorbing. Passive, they don't do much. They're, um, they're just dry, whether it's gauze or non-adherent. The U.S. still use these quite a bit. Negative pressure wound therapy. Um, and we've had negative pressure since the 1990s, but we, now we have a plethora of types. So we have dressings with canisters, without canisters. We have disposable, we have installation, and we have incision management. So negative pressure therapy has certainly grown. And then we have cellular tissue-based products, whether they be matrix or scaffolding um, or growth factors, indeed, once you prepare the wound. And you must always abide by your local policies or procedures. So these are the considerations when you're talking about wound cleansing. We get a lot of questions about showering. Um, and uh, in the home environment, um, we want the patient to feel normal and human and having a shower, but sometimes when they have repeated infections, we discourage them from taking the, down the dressing and going into the shower. What we tend to ask them to do is leave it covered, have the shower. Um, it doesn't matter if it gets wet um, and then change it when um, you get out um, and then wash the leg um, in a more controlled environment. It depends on also the potable water. Um, you know, I work in the country, so some patients um, have tank water you know, when I first moved to Australia, we had possums in our tank water, so it's not always best. So it's those risk factors. In the home situation, again, this is an example from an article I read from the UK, and the picture just struck me, and I use this, is this what should we be doing? The, the dressing tray is on the carpet, um, so I don't, I don't think that's good practice. We recommend that it be on a flat surface. We see that it's either a heater or a, a fan of some sort. Is that turned off or is that blowing into the wound environment? There are unsterile items on the sterile field. That's fine. We can put do that as long as we know that's contaminated. It's poor safety posture for this patient. Um, maybe getting a stool to, to sit more properly or elevate the patient's leg. And the socks are still on. So how much cleaning really was done? So I... I I use this picture for a, very, a variety of reasons. Okay, let's have a little look at, at a way we can do the wound cleansing. Let's go over to that uh, next video. So for this part of the demonstration, we're going to show how to irrigate a cavity using the Prontosan wound solution. Now this is an example of a stage four pressure injury with cavities and tunneling. So we use the Prontosan wound solution as the, in the bottle because it delivers around about seven pounds per square inch or seven PSI. And that's the adequate level of pressure that's needed to irrigate the cavity and remove any devitalized tissue or retain dressing products. Now to open the Prontosan solution, we turn the cap in a clockwise position take off the ring and then you put the cap back on and screw it up until you meet resistance. There's a spike in the end of the cap that penetrates the bottle to open it up. 
Now we're going to show you how to use or open the packet of the uh, Prontosan debridement pad. Now the Prontosan debridement pad is simply opened, we'll pull the backing off, and then we use our bottle of Prontosan solution in the container. and then that's ready for use. Now we'll demonstrate how to use those products on the simulation. Now in this part of the simulation, we're going to be looking at how we actually irrigate the wound and use the debridement pad in clinical practice. Now you've got to remember that this is a simulated scenario, so we would always make sure in the real life clinical situation that we'd observe the principles of um, the aseptic non-touch technique. So making sure that we're washing our hands, donning appropriate protective, personal protective equipment and clothing, and um, maintaining an appropriate level of asepsis for the environment in which you're working. But because this is a simulated scenario, you will notice that there's variance in what we wouldn't ordinarily do in clinical practice. So now I'm going to put on my gloves um, as a simulation and, uh, and then we'll start irrigating the, the wound cavity using the Prontosan solution. Okay, so first of all, what I would do is use the Prontosan wound solution to irrigate the cavity. Now you could also use the Prontosan solution to loosen the dressing product before removal as well, so it would help with atraumatic removal of the dressing, but assuming that we've already removed the dressing and the wound is exposed. So all you do is tip the, wound, the bottle of Prontosan solution up, and a tip for clinical practices, if you can warm the solution before use, it would also help to reduce that wound associated pain for the, the person. Um, so you can do that using a bottle warmer or you can have it in a, a, a jug of warm water, for example. So assuming that we've already done that, now we just tip the bottle up and then just gentle pressure, irrigating the wound and remembering that that's providing around about seven pounds per square inch of pressure. This is where I would typically then loosely pack the wound with some gauze, so put gauze in, and then we would irrigate um, the gauze with the solution. And then I'd leave it sit there, so loosely pack the entire cavity with the gauze, and then leave it sit there for you know, anywhere from five to 10 minutes, depending upon what are your goals of treatment are. In this situation, if we still had this amount of devitalized tissue, I'd be leaving it sit there for probably about that 10 minutes. Then we want to use our debridement pad. So you can see that the debridement pad has a, has a tear-shaped design. The idea is that with the narrower end, you can use that to get into underneath any tunnelling or, or cavities, and then the wider area can be used for flatter surface areas. All right. So for this, for this simulation, we'd use the narrower end, and we're going to literally, in a, using gentle circular motions, we're going to clean the entire surface of the, of the wound helping to lift off and remove the devitalized tissue. And the tiny little microfiber, microfibers in the debridement pad is what really helps to lift off that devitalized tissue. And it's relatively atraumatic, so it doesn't hurt the patient, and you'll find that it comes away nice and easily. So covering the entire surface until we've got uh, pinprick bleeding. And what they say with the pinprick bleeding is that um, it's helping to you've got back to a vascular wound bed, essentially. So um, because this is a, a, a demonstration, you can see that we've got quite a lot of fluid in the surface of the, the, um, the wound moulage. In a normal clinical environment, a lot of this moisture that you would see would be wicked away quite easily. Um, so using those gentle circular motions, helping to clean the wound. And, and what would usually happen in, in clinical practice is that you see that the entire surface of the debridement pad is picking up the debris that's in the, in the wound. So circular motions across the entire surface of the wound. And again, in normal clinical practice where this black necrotic tissue is located, you'd usually be able to lift that off with no, uh, no difficulty and with no trauma to the, the patient. And you'll also notice when I'm using the debridement pad that we're using the edge of it and this is where we're refashioning and shaping the edges of the wound. So it's moving, removing any devitalised tissue or crust that develops on the edge of the wound to stimulate new tissue growth. So your choice, you have a choice of aseptic technique um, and it's remembering um, on the next slide, I'll show you that it's, it's about what, what type of uh, technique you're using, whether you're using a simple or standard uh, wound dressing uh, aseptic technique or complex or surgical aseptic. And that's based on your aseptic technique is based on your sequencing, your environmental control, your hand hygiene, 
that maintenance of the aseptic field, the equipment requirements, and the PPE. In Australia, we tend to go through um, the simple as being 20 minutes. It's a simple procedure, and you can do that microenvironment either through a dressing tray or just putting your instruments and keeping them clean on a small sterile field, whereas surgical is more complex with sterile uh, dress uh, go-outs. So this is just showing you that this is a uh, small, uh, simple dressing tray. And again, uh, there's recommendations from um, the aseptic technique uh, document that I talked about. It's just making sure those microenvironments uh, and no touch are used. This surgical uh, aseptic technique, you would think that internationally we would have some consensus about uh, when that's required. But when I was in the US, um, they don't necessarily have to have a surgical aseptic technique for doing their negative pressure wound therapies. Uh, and so um, I think internationally, we need to come to um, a more consistent, consistent approach when we're teaching about that. So now I'm going to talk about um, value-based care uh, or the true cost of wound care. So we spend billions and our job as clinicians is to be very mindful of our, the cost for uh, the patient and our budgets. And if we do proactive wound management and we get the patient on a healing trajectory, that is good value. So just to review with you what value-based care is. So many times it, we're, we're looking at comparison products and, and I've been in wound management since the 90s, and I've had to go to managers, you know, the unit cost of this is A, and the unit cost of this, of product B is this, and product B may be more expensive, but I'm getting outcomes. I'm, I'm, it's doing the job that I want it to do. So it's not just the cost of the product that we're looking at. We're looking at um, outcomes for that. And that provides you with an overall price of, of therapy. So when you're going to your managers and you're advocating, don't just talk about the unit cost, talk about the value based on wound care uh, about the outcomes. And I guess also talking about duration of treatments as well. So if you have one method of, of cleansing that wound or preparing that wound bed, um, if that's getting you to the point of healing much quicker than a different method or a different technique then actually overall in the long run even though it may be more expensive to use that product initially if that's getting you to that point where you're he you're healing or healed then obviously that's economically a, a good decision absolutely and that's what they call um uh, cost effectiveness um so uh that yes the unit cost may be this but if you're decreasing frequency changes um, and you're actually getting that patient on a healing trajectory. And I actually had um, a manager tell me once that um, I had an inefficient system. Um, and I said, why is that? And he said, you spend too much time with your patients. And I said, okay, so um, you send your patients to me after, you know, six months um, because they're not healing. I diagnose them. And I either say they're healable or non-healable. And if they're healable, get them on a healing trajectory. Um, and, you know, I've got the inefficient service. You keep them on your books for this long. Um, so it's really looking at what the, the priorities are. Um, and we may use more expensive products, but like you said, if we can get the outcomes we want. And it's also what I've talked about before is decreasing that intolerance to non-healing, finding out why. So we really, that, that four to six weeks should be guiding us. If we're not getting some improvement, then why, why continue to maintain them if they're healable? We need to then use the more advanced products, be more proactive in our care or refer off or do all the above in order to get that patient, if they're healable, healed. So when we're talking about wound hygiene and health economics, if we remove the biofilm and decrease it using the recommended um, antiseptics and treatment programs. As stated, we reduce our antibiotic, antimicrobial usage. We reduce our length of treatment that you've talked about. And that gives us more wound-free days. And therefore, that reduces our over, overall price of therapy. So I'd like to conclude talking about 
wound bed preparation is for what you can and what you can't see. So this is augmented assessment using a, a fluorescent device. And what that does, it helps improve our cleansing. And so Price showed that by improving the cleansing and the derivative too, they show decreased microbial density in one year, they were able to decrease their antibiotic prescriptions by 33%. We need to provide therapeutic wound and peri-wound cleansing, debridement, refashioning, uh, and cleansing again, appropriate wound dressing selection based on the wound goals and the patient preferences. And then we need to monitor that progress and make appropriate referrals when required. Thank you very much indeed, Terry and Georgina. That's been a real whistle-stop tour through wound healing and getting wound bed prep optimized uh, so we're delighted to have had you join us for this masterclass today so this was 60 minutes master series and now if we can take any questions from the audience um, don't hesitate to include that in the chat and we can come to your questions and can I ask you, Terry, what's what's the global view on using the term biofilm um, in terms of its popularity over time uh, in your experience? We, we have definitions um, agreed uh, consensus wise about what a biofilm it usually talks about an aggregate and, and these components that I've talked about in the last two slides. So biofilm in itself isn't isn't a bad word. It, it reflects the phenotype of the bacteria or microbes. What is a uh, concern, I think, in the, the biofilm expert community is the fact that a lot of our information is known from the labor laboratory. And we've kind of generalized that information out into the, the actual chronic wound environment. And we really don't know fully how much the laboratory environment matches the, the wound environment out uh, with the, our patients. It's an emerging science. We are learning more. Um, and, you know, in Kosterton works back in the 1990s uh, to Thomas Barnhold, Stephen Percival, Matt Malone, Randy Wilcott, and Garth James, all are experts. And we still are know that we have a long way to go to fully understand how it, it works in the wound environment versus the laboratory. And we have all these mental models about what we think, you know, the mushrooms don't actually grow out in the wound itself. Um, people are trying to equate a surface substance or slime slough that equates with biofilm. And again, that's sort of a myth about biofilm because you can, Matt Malone has great photos of pristine, healthy looking wounds, but they're not healing. Um, and when they've done biopsies, there's significant biofilm within that. So some wounds may have surface substance, but some may not. It's more due to the fact that when it's a healable wound and not healing, that we suspect that biofilm. But remember that it's not just the biofilm. You have the three components that Georgina's talked about, and that's the wound and the environment of which um, that patient resides uh, and the service provision they have. Um, and then the host is always a definitive factor you know, the risk factors, the comorbidities, they have play a key part uh, in what can or cannot happen. And do you feel, Terry, that that identification of biofilm all those years ago has made people think differently about how they would cleanse a wound? Because now, obviously, they've got this tangible um, layer called a biofilm layer that now they're having to address the way that they were previously dealing with wound cleansing and wound bed prep. Now that's brought an additional layer of kind of thought into that process. It has. Um, I've been around long enough that you see the wheel turn. And there was a time uh, when we were told that um, we had to be very gentle with the wound for that emerging granulation tissue. And um, that we you know, needed to be very careful with the, the solutions that we put in. But Randy Walcott talks about the, the wound that's locally infected as a hostile environment. And so we've moved, the wheel has turned again to where we now understand that if we're not cleansing, we could be impacting negatively on that wound healing. If we allow those microbes, if we allow the crusting at the wound edges. So we understand that we are facilitating healing. Whereas before we thought we were hurting with cleansing. And in some cultures, Cleansing is um, not advocated. And so 
trying to teach the patients and, and be cultural sensitive to um, what they require, trying to give them the evidence and understanding that we need to cleanse out the, the non-desirable so that the wound can have its full potential. So yes, we have, the wheel has turned. Um, and I think we're all in agreement now that wound cleansing needs to occur with each dressing change. How you do that varies and with what solution varies, but it needs to be done at some level. What would be your take home message to someone that would be starting out in wound care? Is that we, we're all time poor. And so um, whether you're a community nurse and you've got 10 patients you have to see, or you've got five patients in the wards and three of them have wound dressings that you have to do today is that when you're in front of that patient, making sure that you give that time that is required to do it right. Um, making sure that you know you've gone and reviewed what was done before or what the etiology is, um, what the condition of the wound was prior so that you can make an informed decision. Taking the time to follow the aseptic technique to do the assessment and the cleansing. Uh, and then you have to document your assessment. Photos um, are so helpful and um, because if the surgeon comes after you've just completed the dressing change and he says, but I wanted to see it, then you can say, here, this is what it looks like. And they don't have to, they don't have to take the dressing down. Um, and so your policies and procedures should support that. We have certainly moved away from doing the rounds where we take down all the dressings so they can make their rounds. That is not conducive to healing. That's not conducive to good infection prevention control. Um, so advocating for the patient and for yourself to, to do the procedure correctly. Uh, thank you so much to the panel tonight uh, with Terry Swanson joining us and also Georgina Gethin. Uh, don't forget that this will be available uh, on demand. If you would like to go back and listen to any of this presentation, uh, you can access this on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, YouTube, Big Marker, and also on the Wound Masterclass website. And Webron Medical, uh, who supported this event, uh, will have this on their website as well. So thanks again to the global audience for interacting. Thank you, Terry and Georgina. It's been a real pleasure spending the last 60 minutes with you. Thank you for the opportunity.